Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is part one of a chat I had with Brad Merritt, bassist and one of the founding members of Vancouver, British Columbia's 5440. So we're not going to spend um, too much time on the rich history of 5440 uh, pre 90s, as this is a 90s podcast, but can you maybe set up um, the state of the band? What was uh, going on in the band in the late 80s leading into the 90s? Well, I should probably uh, start from the beginning of of the Warner Brothers uh, saga. In 1985, the summer of 85, well, first of all, I'll, 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 just, I'll start more or less at the beginning. I mean, we were a kind of an independent underground band from Vancouver that uh, started playing Vancouver shows. And then we slowly worked our way down the West coast by 1982. Actually, we were playing San Francisco three or four times a year. And then we got to Los Angeles, uh, 84, a couple times and then 85. So by the time uh, the summer of 85 had rolled around, we had actually already pretty much put a record in the can, which was, which, which would be the green record. Hmm. And, uh, we went down, we went down to Los Angeles in September. We just, uh, parted ways with our, uh, drummer, Daryl Newdorf brought, uh, Matt Johnson on board, uh, in August and, uh, got him up to speed and then, and went and did this tour of California and, and essentially sat in Los Angeles for about a week and played all these different clubs and, and uh, anyway, then uh, actually, I think we played we played KPFK, which was uh, a radio station. Andrea Enthal had this sort of late night, uh, nationally syndicated um, NPR new music station uh, or program. And uh, yeah, that's right. We ended up staying staying mostly at the radio station. Mm, wow. <laughs> they, they went. They went like. It was just in the valley. It was in um, North Hollywood, I think, uh, just off the 101. And uh, we finished the, the broadcast. We, I think it went from like midnight till like one in the morning or something like that. And we're sitting around with, you know, the producer and the engineer and Andrea. And I was like, where are you guys staying? Well, we don't really have a place to stay. And we drove down to my van and we sort of figured it out. Quite often we, we, we would make friends and stay on their, their uh, floors. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, Boy, this is really this is really a uh, a uh, a tangent, but we'll we'll just we'll go there. <laughs> so uh, it was fantastic, you know. We got to know the area, feel comfortable there, and eventually, you know, record companies in the United States started to really give us a lot of attention. We got nothing in Canada. Wow. I mean, um, it was a real branch plant economy here as far as music was concerned, and essentially, they were looking for kind of lowest common de- denominator what do we think we could package up and sell to the Americans, right? To their Hmm. bigger market. So uh, we know all those bands that came out of Canada in the 1980s. I don't have to bring them all up. Um, So we were a little bit different in that regard. Mm, And, and so, yeah. So, so in 85, we had, uh, we already done several independent records, uh, compilations, or, or I should say where we cooperated with other bands and, you know, put our songs on their, you know, it's kind of like a, what do you call that? I was like a sampler. We did an EP, six song EP, and then we did Set the Fire, which was a, a eight song album. 
that started to get a lot of attention in the United States. We're on a sub pop cassette. You know, they used to put oh, these, wow, these sampler cassettes up. Yeah. And um, anyway, so uh, like I said, the, the, the environment in, in the United States was far more competitive on the record company side. There was all sorts of these kind of uh, major, many more majors, all these independents. Uh, and uh, they all started to come out to our shows. So when we did this in 1985, back to 1985 again, uh, in the summer, we recorded a, pretty much a whole record. And most of that was with Daryl. Uh, we did one song with Matt. Uh, and we said, look, we've been releasing our own records here for the last five years. <clears throat> let's get somebody else to do it this time. And there's enough interest. So let's just <laughs> see if we can get a record deal. Right. So, so uh, we go down there, start to get piles of attention from record companies. Eventually, we signed to Warner Brothers in winter, spring of '86, and then we took the Green record, uh, and they wanted to remix it. So we got Dave Jordan to remix everything, and he did some neat things, like he took Baby Ram, he sped it up a little bit. Hmm. You know, he, he he was he was pretty cool. It's a pretty well goopy. Uh, 80s kind of mix, you know, um, lots of reverb and that kind of stuff. Like, let's do it now. Go, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but so, uh, and yeah, we started, you know, we, we had, uh, what was it? Baby Ram was on MTV, you know, mm. um, we toured down the United States relentlessly in the van, you know, just, you know, five or six of us, uh, one or two crew guys and, and four guys in the band and played everywhere. And, um, we should have probably worked that record a little harder, but there are some things which happened. Um, uh, there was what was called the independent uh, uh, radio promotion scandal, IRP. Uh, that came in kind of just before our record came out, which was essentially uh, record companies uh, didn't indulge in the, uh, the payola that, uh, that you had to, to, to indulge in in order to get radio play in the United States. So what they did is they contracted it out to other companies, oh, wow. of course, where they're called ind independent radio promoters. And so uh, I can't remember which one of these news magazine uh, TV shows in the United States picked up uh, on this and they did this big expose. And then that was in May of 86. And then our record came out in June of 86. Oh, wow. So, so they, had, they had no really way of promoting our record, our singles, right? So I'm uh, getting it to radio uh, uh, playlists froze. And, um, huh. and so we just basically just, like I said, got in the truck and drove around. And, uh, like I said, we got a little help from MTV, which was helpful and college radio was pretty good. I mean, they were still very good to us. So we were a bit of a college radio sensation kind of mid eighties. Uh, so, so the green record comes out in, in, uh, 86, uh, and it doesn't go as far as we'd like it to go. And, and the record company convinces us like, let's stop working this record. Let's make another one. Right. So, they're thinking they're going to do, you know, uh, you know, break us wide open. So they get Dave Jordan to produce it. He had just come off. Um, he was essentially an engineer. This is only his second project as producer. He just did the beat farmers as a producer, but before that he did dirty work. Uh, he's the Rolling Stones engineer. Mm -hmm. He did all the stuff. He did television records. He did, he was the engineer on, I believe the engineer on remain in light by, by talking heads. Hmm. So yeah, he was, you know, obviously knew his stuff and it's great. So we did a record with, uh, with him and, uh, the single is one day in your life, which just 
kind of broke things open for us in Canada. Um, uh, the record went gold in Canada, uh, but didn't do that great in the United States. So it was uh, once again we were slogging it out in the in the in the van, and then we did one more record with them, "Fight for Love," which we kind of kind of appropriated everything back. We said, "Let's just get the budget. We'll make it in Vancouver. We won't make it in Los Angeles. We'll produce it ourselves. We'll work with Dave Ogilvy, Rave, who you know did recorded the Green record with us." was an engineer on set the fire and was a friend. And so we brought everything in house and made a, you know, a great record, great sounding record, at least we thought. Uh, and that just, that didn't do very well in the United States either. Sold, you know, I don't know, a few 10,000, tens of thousands of copies, we'll say. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, we toured around. That was the first tour we did in the United States with a tour bus. And we went all over the United States. And then we, shot up the eastern seaboard right up to Canada and did a cross-Canada tour playing theaters. And then we kind of uh, parted ways with uh, Warner Brothers. It was a, you know, we got a little kiss goodbye, as they say, which is a little bit of money, which allowed us to to sort of woodshed for a year, year and a half. Also in Canada, they, 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 they released a record called Sweeter Things, which was uh, kind of a greatest hits, which went on to sell almost 200,000 copies. So it, oh, wow. it was a big record and sort of kept things going for us. And then uh, we, I guess Sony Music Canada had a kind of a mandate to, to sign some some acts. So they there's three different categories they were looking at, you know, kind of a, a kind of a heritage thing, a rock thing, and then kind of a pop thing. So they signed us, Leonard Cohen, and Celine Dion. Oh, wow. <laughs> so uh, Celine Dion, Celine Dion, she, she ended up paying for a bunch of our Sony records. So we're very grateful to her. <laughs> so that was, uh, that's, that, that gets us into the, you know, the early nineties. And like I said, you're talking about the state of, of the band and, and our minds, essentially we, we had recommitted to keep, you know, being a band, you know, we knew we were good. There were some certain breaks that, that actually went our way and other breaks that went against us. And uh, rather than sort of, you know, uh, letting the vagaries of the uh, music industry get us down, we just sort of resolved to to get better at what we did, uh, to write more songs, and and uh, so then that's all the all that work we put in in '90 and '91 became the basis of uh, the record uh, "Dear Dear." Now, I'm not a musician, so to my un- uneducated ear, I noticed kind of a, a change in sound a little bit with "Dear Dear." It's kind of uh, more flat out rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Was that a conscious decision, or was that kind of influenced by the music of the time and on the West Coast, or can maybe describe the writing of that record? Yeah, you're right. I mean, uh, conscious. I think. I mean, what we dis- discovered about us in retrospect is that whatever we worked on so intently we tended to, when we got to the next project, we kind of reacted against that. So mm. we kind of bounced around and, you know, we were really in kind of a, you know, I mean, it was, we felt like, uh, this is a presumptuous thing to say, but we felt like we were artists, right? So mm. we, we wanted to, we wanted to follow our muse rather than sort of be in the music business. Right. And, um, yeah, and that, I think that served us well in some respects and probably, you know, cost us in others, but, uh, you know, we're prepared to live with that. So we definitely, you know, were more interested in uh, tone. You can use that word, and it works on more than one level. Mm-hmm. 
going into the Dear Deer record, we were, we were themes got a little bit more serious, but also there was a whole whimsical side too, which came out. Um, we were, I think, more comfortable with getting heavier. You know, um, I think we, we just got more interested as the band went on. We became sort of less, you know, kind of uh, underground, uh, kind of experimental, uh, instrumentally kind of interesting uh, pop, we'll say, or whatever you want to call it. But it didn't really we didn't really rock. And then I think a lot of that comes with, with you know, Matt Johnson joining the band. Right. He. Mm. He is a, a very good, solid rock drummer. And, um, you know, I remember dealing with, you know, the A&R people at, at Warner Brothers. And, they, and uh, one of these guys, Felix Chamberlain, says, he goes, drummers make rock bands. <laughs> and so, you know, in many ways, we were made by Matt. Interesting. Um, Daryl was way more, first of all, he, he had trouble with the up-tempo stuff. But he liked kind of, you know, kind of pop uh, intricacies, right? Uh, little devices and uh, was more turned on by that and played like that. And uh, so, yeah, so I think that's part of the evolution of the band is just getting that. And then, you know, uh, so I don't know if it was a conscious thing or, or not, but, but I think because we had that much time, we just explored everything, right? Mm. And, uh, you know, we've got sort of better amplifiers and, and uh, took a more interesting, like I said, guitars and guitar tone. And, uh, like I said, the, the tone of, you know, the lyrics got serious with songs like Sheila, which are, you know, essentially about um, spousal abuse and murder. You're not going to get more serious, more serious than that. <laughs> um, two more whimsical stuff like, like, you know, it's nice to love you and music man. And, you know, and then some more introspective songs, which are, you know, further along in the record. So, you know, we were, we were at the time really working hard, right? It was, we were very much in trying to establish ourselves mode. Right. So, uh, Canada, you know, Sony Music Canada was very good for us. I mean, they, you know, because we were one of their major acts, nothing was really spared in terms of uh, promotion or energies or resources. Um, we ended up going across Canada uh, uh, that summer uh, playing kind of little, you know, baseball stadiums and uh, uh, racetracks, and uh, we played CNE. Uh, stadium uh, op uh, opening up all these shows for Tom Cochran, and that was when he hmm. did Life as a Highway, which was you know, record, a yeah. million seller in Canada. Yeah, big record. Mm -hmm. So that put us in front of a lot of people and helped us um, build up fans. And also, we were still playing all the you know colleges and universities across across Canada as well. So we were you know kind of working it, working it, working it hard. <laughs> Find a thing Maybe just nothing Maybe just a dream
something big by cutting through the land There was a sign you heard a calling He says, baby, I don't want to die today Say so long, man, it's too late Now, uh, one of the interesting uh, little tidbits I found in, in researching was Dear Dear was recorded at Tom Petty's studio. Is that accurate? Well, so see, Dear Dear. Dear Dear was done at Rumble Recorders, which, yeah, everyone recorded there. It was up in the valley, just north of Los Angeles. And, but what we did is we, 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 we used a lot of his instruments and also some of the, some of the players in his band played on our our record oh so, wow i think this one from his band was ben montench right uh, was the keyboard player he played hammond organ on a couple songs and but we also were able to because uh, uh don smith did that record uh who was tom petty's engineer and also worked mm. with the traveling wilburys and all that stuff oh, wow. he had access to what's called tom petty's locker which basically <laughs> had all, all all these great vintage amps so huh. Once again, you know, uh, like sort of our, 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 our tonal exploration, you know, led us to, you know, pulling out all these, you know, great vintage amps and trying to get these, these really cool guitar sounds. So, uh, and, you know, dr- drums and bass and, and vocal sounds and keyboards. I mean, we, we were trying to, um, we were interested in the, as the Stranglers would say, the oral sculpture. You know? <laughs> nice. Yeah, we were, we were sonically sonically interested so after that uh tom cochran opening slot did you uh go out as well and do some gigs on your own headlining or did you go right into uh you know preparing for smiling buddha so so we did yes oh yeah lots yeah yeah lots and lots and lots yeah we we worked that record hard uh (laughs) when we did the cne show which was later in the summer so it wasn't it wasn't part of that sort of Western Canada thing, which was earlier in the summer. Um, Sony presented us with a gold record, you know, mm. which is you know only our second second gold record. And then we continued to work that record, and I think I think by Christmas it had gone platinum. So wow. yeah, so I mean, it's things were really happening for us in, in Canada. I mean, we it's it had really taken off. The United States was 
uh, we've kind of given up on the U.S. Uh, I don't think Sony Music Canada did. They certainly shot our record down there. Uh, we continued to play down there just for because we had some uh, some fans and you know we could get shows. But it started to be we started to emphasize more uh, in Canada. We had more control over how we presented ourselves and also. Um, and I don't want to to uh, this to, to appear in a bad light, but it was it was easier, right? It was, mm. uh, you know, at that point now Neil's got a couple of kids. Uh, you know, I've, shortly after that, I've got one on the way, and and then I think Phil already had one, and mm. um, so um, you know, we 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 actually wanted to kind of live our lives and still create. Right. It wasn't so much about trying to trying to uh make it big you know um worldwide or the united states or something like that it's just it's not that we wouldn't have liked that Mm -hmm. but we kind of had we we kind of set terms now uh spending more time in canada as you mentioned as opposed to the u.s did you especially in the early 90s did you kind of see or feel the alternative kind of rock scene bubbling up here i mean as a music fan were you kind of witnessing a change changing the guard so to speak no question about that. Yeah. yeah. And that was, that, that occurred sort of through the eighties. Mm-hmm. And by the time the nineties rolled around, you actually had a, 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 you know, a viable Canadian music industry that was a little bit more aggressive and looking for talent and, and trying to, I mean, that, those are the days where you could actually develop talent. It's not like now where, you know, there's three major companies and all they're looking for is, you know, waiting until, you know, you pretty much made it big independently and then they snatch you up. And, right. You know, it was, uh, it's, you know, so it's, uh, it's, and we, we saw that, I mean, that, that happened, you know, kind of, uh, right before our eyes. And I think we were probably a part of that at some point, you know, that's in some way we were kind of like a, a vanguard, you know, that, that, where people could see that, yeah, you could actually, you could actually do this. Right. Mm-hmm. So, whereas before I, I think, you know, like I say, it's the, the Canadian uh, music industry was very much, uh, you know, USA branch plant kind of thing. So um, there was lots of, yeah. getting into the nineties, there was many, many, many Canadian bands and we toured with all of them. Every, everyone you could possibly uh, think of uh, we were, we played, uh, on bills with them and um knowing that a band like yourself had already been doing it for 10 years really at that point did you kind of feel um like elder statesman in a, in a way where you're kind of showing these younger bands you know setting an example or were people coming up to you and asking you questions about how to survive as a band for example or anything of that nature any kind of uh mentor yeah, no. aspect tyler the simple answer to that is yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so there's your answer, but uh, I'll expand a little bit. Appreciate uh, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course you do. Of course you do. <laughs> yes, yes, yes is not going to serve your purpose very well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, you know, it got it, we not only were you know we had we become elder statesmen, we're off, now we're you know we're in our thirties, right. so uh, getting up there, and uh, we you know had you know by the time you know ninety four rolled around we'd done five records on major labels and and uh you know sold hundreds of thousands of records blah 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 um but so yeah absolutely there's there's you know young people would come up to us and and uh and uh you know 
ask us questions. Um, and it got to the point actually where I had kind of, a, I developed a pat, pat answer to this, where it's like, where someone say, you know, um, I'm thinking about, you know, doing this and I, you know, really I'm kind of excited about it. And, uh, you know, what kind of advice would you have? And I said, yeah, I've got some advice for you. Don't do it. <laughs> so, you know, and then they'd go, well, they, they kind of, you know, get the furrowed brow and, right, you know, right. you know what, do you, what do you mean? Like, I said, well, I mean, if this is really, really difficult, you know, uh, there's no money in it until maybe there, there might be some, there might be some at some point. And who knows, maybe you'll win the lottery and make a lot of money. Who knows? But that's, that's, it's like winning the lottery in, mm-hmm. in music. Um, but to, to make, to get to the point where you're making a living, uh, it requires absolutely everything that you can put into into it. It's, you know, I can't say enough how hard uh, Neil and I worked at the outset and how driven we were to mm. to make things go. And you know, I mean, if if, if uh, there was a chance to play something, uh, we jumped in the van and we went. And it didn't. It was irrespective of how much money was there was there. If we could put us in front of people. We're going to do it. And every, almost every night, um, you know, for a long time, we actually got together and, you know, tried to write songs hmm. for three or four hours a night, as wow. well as holding down, you know, day jobs. Yeah. I mean, there was, there's not like a lot of social life other than we went to a lot of shows <laughs> because that's still, that still interested us. Right. So, um, so that's the background for me saying what I said. Right. And then, you know, I'd, I'd look at them and wait for them to t- say something and they'd say, well, I'm going to do it anyway or something like that. And yeah. I go, good for you. Right? <laughs> good for you. Because, because that's what it takes, you know, because, you know, just if, if you're expecting me to give you to, you know, to, to be a cheerleader or something like that, that doesn't, that won't serve uh, any purpose because, you know, you have to be, like I say, you have to put everything into it that you can, you possibly can, you know, and I'm, ta- I'm talking uh, time, energy, the learning which goes on, you know, and becoming better at what you do. Um, all the money that you make, you know, from your day job goes in, into the band. There's no lifestyle. There's no, you know, just, you know, it's, it's, that's what it takes. And it takes years and years and years of doing that before, before you become that overnight success that people think still exists. Going to all those shows and, and touring with all these bands, was there one, you know, band that you kind of um, really got got along with, or really dug their music, or as a fan. You know, the tragically hip were a, a really good hang. Yeah, um, and our paths crossed a lot uh, in the '90s. They, they opened up for us at the Spectrum in Montreal, hmm. and uh, we would play in festivals and that kind of stuff. And then they just took off, right? Which was absolutely fantastic. Um, but they're lovely guys and uh and love their music uh the pursuit of happiness um which you kind of kind of run their course by the early 90s uh were good friends of ours who played lots of shows the band uh our lady peace opened up i'm gonna say 50 or 60 shows for us oh wow they, they so they're on sony as well and Sony yeah. wanted to break them and and we helped to do that bands we got along with really well uh, the, the odds are, are good friends of ours uh, still. Uh, Stephen Drake, who was in that band, not in that band anymore, he ended up producing um, "Trusted by Millions," yep. which was our, you know, our biggest selling record. 
Is there a, a song from one of those bands that kind of uh, really really sums up your experience as a music fan of uh, Canadian music in the 90s? Is there a, a tune from one of those bands that you kind of crank up if you on the radio or something of that nature? Yeah, uh, I would say it would be uh, uh, I, was, I Was Fucking Wendy Under the Stars. <laughs> nice. Classic. By the odds. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> under the... <laughs> the night that Elvis died. No, I... I, I... <laughs> The night that Elvis died. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, eat my brain. You know, I the, like the odds were amazing. When we were down in, in L.A., I can't remember which record we were on. It might have been making Dear Dear because, you know, with the producer, uh, Dave Jordan. Uh, was it Dave Jordan or was it Don Smith? I can't remember which record it was. Oh, it probably might have been 80s. It would have been 80s. Yeah. So this doesn't apply to the podcast. You can edit this that's part fine. out. No, that's good. Um, keep going. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> We would go, we had two, so he, he needed to have two days off because he'd been away from his family for so long that we only worked Monday through Friday. So, um, which is unusual when you're making a record, usually you're working six days in a row and then you take one day off and then it's not six days in a row, which is kind of the way we like to work. And, um, so we had these, you know, these weekends which seemed to go on forever, you know, (laughs) because we were, you know, anxious to get back in there and go to work. Mm -hmm. And so we, you know, we, go to shows we would uh go to movies we would go to a lot of record stores and the the odds uh were everywhere huh. uh, i can't remember which record it was i don't want like right on that's great you know um and we were down there making a record and you know the band the northern pikes they were all over uh mtv um, um it was it was it was kind of neat you know we were kind of we were kind of uh we liked to uh, not that we we're big flag waivers but we always liked it when our uh, brethren, our right. fellow Canadian band, started to do something. Um, yeah, it's so funny. It's like when we went to that, we went to uh, uh, Moscow in 1989 and played huh. a music festival. Whether that was oh, during, wow. you know, Glasnost and Perestroika, and before it went back to being a, you know, whatever a totalitarian state. It was kind of a fledgling, you know, could have become a democracy. Uh, so we were there uh, in 1989, and, and it was in May, so it was during the World Hockey Championships. Huh. And I've never been more of a hockey fan in my life than I was in Russia, you know, rooting for uh, for Canada in the, <laughs> in the World Championships, right? Yeah. So, so, uh, so when you're down in the United States, you know, making records, and and uh, you know, uh, other Canadian bands are you know starting to do well down there, or at least getting a little tension. It's it uh, it gave us a good feeling.
So um, fast forwarding a bit down to um, Smiling Buddha, uh, you had mentioned earlier that uh, you guys are always kind of working against the kind of previous record, kind of trying to expand your sound and expand uh, the direction of the band, I guess you could say. Uh, Smiling Buddha is no exception. I mean, there's a lot of kind of trippier aspects to that record than some of the previous material. Mm -hmm. Can you maybe take us through the writing of that album and maybe something like um, Ocean Pearl, which is a big song for a lot of people, any kind of memories of writing or recording that song? So we'd done uh, Dear Dear, uh, really successful. And, um, you know, like I said, we'd sort of, you know, really take an interest in the sound of it and becoming more of a rock band. And so uh, when we started to write songs for uh, Smiling Buddha Cabaret, we kind of wanted to become uh, more eclectic, Hmm. uh, you know, more artistic again, I guess you'd say, uh, more uh, uh, exploratory. So, uh, and when you, you know, once again, the themes are still there, you know, there's, you know, blame your parents, right. assaholic, and, and then there's lots of whimsy on that record, which didn't get the same attention probably as those songs, but, and then there's, you know, really rock songs, but the writing process was, we tried to write songs in about a half an hour. Wow. <laughs> so, so, and it's like, basically we'd start playing something or someone would say something and we'd start playing something that was interesting and then we'd jump in on that and then Neil would get to the microphone, we'd press record on our little recording device and uh, we'd try to capture these things, right? And and then, you know, maybe develop them a little bit. So it was, it, we try to make a spontaneous record is what we tried to do there. And, you know, Neil would obviously take take it home and kind of flesh out the lyrics or he already had ideas that he's, he, he kept in like a little journal so that, you know, he's kind of ready to go when, when the band's ready to go. So that was kind of like a little bit of an instant record. Wow. And then we did this, yeah, we did this really, oh, I, I talk about Ocean Pearl. So Ocean, Ocean Pearl is, uh, we're working, we had a little studio practice space kind of thing out in Delta in uh, Tilbury, like in a kind of industrial area. It's an industrial park. Hmm. And, and we had, you know, set up these, you know, big kind of parachute things that we had that we used to use as a backdrop that cover the windows and okay. and a little bit of soundproofing in there. And then we could only make, I think we couldn't really make noise until after five o'clock because there's obviously businesses that are operating in there. Mm-hmm. And um, so we we're working hard, you know, coming up with these uh, songs and... Neil just comes in and goes, I've got this little thing. And he just come, he actually came up with the, with the riff for, for Ocean Pearl. Just a little, that little sort of, you know, R&B guitar part kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's great. So I started doing my bass. And then I threw in the minor third to fifth thing, you know, the, where they sing is Ocean Pearl, right? Right. So we had that. So, we had, so that became a little bit of a chorus. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay. And then he said, this is what we're going to do. Blah, 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 blah. I got it. And whatever. And we started, you know, kind of chewing each other. And that was pretty much an instant song too. He had this, he had the ocean pearl thing, right. Um, which he had read, which was a uh, Cockney slang for, uh, for girl. I huh. think it was and it kind, of, kind, of, kind of came out of world war one era. Kind oh, of thing. Wow. So that's where the, that, yeah. So he's got that in his head and then, yeah, it just, I think it was, you know, one or two takes. Huh. And the funny thing is, is that, uh, uh, we ended up doing this uh, very involved demo recording with 
Glenn Reilly. Uh, we worked we worked with his uh, his brother uh, on um, who was the engineer on uh, Fight for Love. But Glenn was you know our kind of our life sound guy, and he bought a little Tascam sixteen track one inch tape recorder, and he had some you know some preamps and some outboard gear and some nice microphones. So we set up set up or so we set up on this warehouse thing kind of on Richard Street, kind of in Yale Town before Yale Town became what people think of Yale Town as now. And um, started to record these songs as basically it was going to be like a demo, but they were going to be very good demos. Mm. And then we thought, well, we'll get a producer to produce this stuff. So we started, to, that's what we did. We, we, we got uh, Sony Music Canada to get, you know, organized Don Smith to do another record with him. And we went down there and Don was very distracted. And he was, once again, he was one of these guys that had been ignoring his family. So at least that's what we heard. And uh, so we're working Monday to Friday and he said he needed the weekends off. But what was happening was, was Don was, uh, uh, he had this other band that he was bringing in kind of, kind of using our gear on the weekends hmm. And yeah, like I say, he wasn't really interested in in uh, kind of the record that much. And he had all sorts of people come in and you know play and do stuff. And we did Ocean Pearl, and it it sounded like very stilted. And it was really you know really bad. Anyway, so what we did was we said, you know, Don, this is not working, you know. And we left, we left L.A. and went back to to Vancouver, and we listened to what we had, these demos. And we said, geez, you know, these are pretty good. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're not perfect. They're not perfect. They're, but they're very, like, had, had an energy. There was that spontaneity, that spark that's in some of these recordings where you did, you know, one, two or three takes. And so uh, we said, why don't we just pick the ones that we like from this? And then there's, you know, four or five ones that Dawn did that we liked. And uh, we'll make it, we'll make our record out of that. And mm -hmm. so I think it was like a 14 song record and we considered it to be kind of a, like the cabaret. It was very eclectic, you know, mm -hmm. you didn't know where you're going to get from song to song. And so, and we just, it was kind of a no rules kind of record. It was very risky. And, you know, the first single I think was Blame Your Parents. And then we did Assaholic and, uh, those, uh, songs. I mean, they got attention on rock radio in Canada, which is like eight stations or 10 stations across the country, but it wasn't doing that great. And we're like, Oh my God, you know, it's, we need to do better. And so then they released uh, ocean Pearl, the single, and went and did that video for it, uh, down in, uh, California and Arizona and Nevada. And, um, the thing just blew up, right? It just, it went, it went from, you know, selling whatever, a few records to a hundred thousand records just in a matter of a few weeks, because the, people just love that song. That's the power of a hit single, yeah. you know, and it might be our biggest, biggest song ever. I mean, and you know, uh, I mean, I go blind is there, but for other reasons, mm -hmm. and it came from, you know, that's how it came, came together with, you know, Neil, yeah, he just had uh, kind of a little bit of a melody line. He had the little little lick, the little guitar part, which he couldn't sing and play at the same time. Hmm. Um, he, he had to learn how to do that later. I mean, we, wow. it wasn't even in our set. 
until until the song took off, huh. and then he realized, well, we we got to figure out how to do this. <laughs> That's amazing. like spontaneous, exploratory, um, risky, uh, I would imagine aren't things that a record label likes to hear. What was kind of Sony's reaction, you know, and this being your second record with them, to those kinds of concepts you guys were, were flirting with? That's a good question. I, I, you know, I think they they were fast becoming, you know, the most important record company in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and they uh, were signing, you know, bands and other artists at a rapid pace. Um, it was a very dynamic company. It was like fully integrated, right? They had this big building in north of Toronto, uh, Scarborough, I don't know where it was, but anyway. And they did everything right there. There was a recording studio there. Hmm. There was a sound stage. There was uh, video production. They actually manufactured uh, albums, CDs, cassettes there. Actually, wow. the manufacturing wow. there. They they could they had a print shop. They could print their own posters and marketing stuff. They had, and it was it was um, really incredible. Uh, so I think, and I think there were. What I love about Sony Music Canada is they they would just give us the money, you know, mm. and they wouldn't they didn't place a lot of uh, demands on us or try to shape us. I guess they felt that, you know, Interesting. we kind of had our ideas. Yeah, we had our ideas and, 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 and they, I don't know if they trusted us, but they were, they were willing to, uh, yeah, I guess they trusted us. Well, let's, let's go with that. You mentioned the ocean Pearl video, which to me is one of my, you know, the, one of the memorable, memorable, there's a lot of memorable videos from the nineties in Canada, but that one specifically always stands out. Um, but it also looks like it was a difficult shoot. I mean, how dangerous it was it for you guys to be on top of that bus cruising through like Reno or wherever it was? Yeah, so that uh, that was dangerous. <laughs> like I certainly I certainly wouldn't do it now. <laughs> a little bus surfing. We were we were more live. We were younger, more athletic. So <laughs> yeah, no kidding. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. Uh, you know, and we were we a bunch of our crew didn't make it across the line. Oh, wow. uh, so we, we actually became, became our own crew. We'd get up at you huh. know, 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning and get everything, pile everything into the bus, and then we'd go to our location and help set it up. And huh. It was a really – it was fun. It was really – it was uh, – it took a lot, uh, but we were totally into it and committed. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah, we did it in uh, Las Vegas, and we went to Arizona amongst the, the cacti there. <laughs> and then uh, – then we made, kind of made our way from California. We did a, a day in Death Valley, a day in Joshua Tree a National Forest, where we got a fine and a lecture because we <laughs> weren't allowed to do that stuff. And then, uh, and then we went into Los Angeles, and then finally down to the Santa Monica Pier. Was that a concept that you know the director would bring to you? Was that something the band developed, or, or you know the backstory? Do you recall? Jeff Weinrich. Hmm. He was probably like the hot director of his day. And Jeff, he uh, did uh, Blame Your Parents with us. He did Assaholic. He did uh, Ocean Pearl. And also he did um, Radio Love Song. Mm. So those are the four singles. And when he those did are the all. four singles on yeah, He did all of those. Yeah, and he, so he had, yeah, he had the, he had the concept for all of them. And then usually there's a process where we, you know, I think he has a, what, like, he creates a synopsis. We read it, and then we help flesh it out, or not. Mm. You know, or it's like, yeah, let's do that. You know, right? So I can't remember the exact process. I know Neil liked to get very much hands-on, but I don't recall him doing that so much with with the videos on that record. I think probably once Jeff did uh, "Blame Your Parents," and he saw how good that turned out, that he just like just ran with his idea. So that was that was his idea. That was Jeff's idea. Does the success of Ocean Pearl, I think you mentioned it was the third or fourth single, um, kind of yeah. show you the, the power of Much Music had back in the 90s? Yeah, well, I tell you, uh, we've been really busy as a band since early June. 
uh, this year and, um, you know, kind of post COVID and, and there's a lot of pent up demand and some of these, these, these shows were actually, you know, booked two years ago or last year and we're just sort of, yeah, making up for lost time. So, mm-hmm. so, so in the show, like, you know, we do, we play, uh, three songs and there's, you know, kind of, then it's time to actually, you know, talk about something. And, and, uh, and in the introduction to baby Ram, you know, Neil's got, a, he's, he's, he's come up with a sort of, uh, little bit of, of, of a, a patter, you know, that, that, uh, kind of works and, uh, relates to the uh, newer generation, hmm. which is like, you know, he says, you know, back in our day, we had something that was like TikTok, but, uh, <laughs> it was called much music. Right. And it's, it's really how people got their music because it was easily the most progressive radio station in the country. It was also a national station and it just came with, came with pictures with moving pictures. And, uh, you know, you know, I mean, we were kind of old school in a way, I mean, because, you know, um, we knew you had to have a video, but it wasn't something that would, you know, you know, if we were in the sixties or seventies, obviously there'd be, you know, live shots and little things. And, you know, sometimes you did a little, whatever it was that created some sort of moving image of the band, you know, or captured songs, but, you know, uh, it was, yeah, this whole thing that came up and went went right through most of the Mm nineties, uh, where, you know, the video was as important as the song in terms of, you know, marketing the band. But, uh, so yeah, it was absolutely huge. And, I really, uh, I miss it in some respects, Mm -hmm. I guess, I guess there is that, there is a social media thing, which is taking place now where people can discover stuff, you know, and you can get down your own little niche and, and, but there was nothing that was, uh, you know, that moved popular culture the way, you know, you know, mass consumed television that was youth oriented could do. Right. And that's, I don't care what country you're in. So um, it was really a cool thing, and we we've kind of embraced the challenge of trying to come up with these these videos that that uh, that we felt good about, and uh, you know captured something about us, and and also were able to get some attention. So it was a it was a it was, there was a fun times. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash become a patron, get access to deleted audio, get advanced notes of the guests, and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more Naughty's Karen Rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Until next time, friends, take care.